welcome back to the Meet the Translator podcast. In this new series, I'm going to chat to even more translators about the different areas of translation they work in. And to kick it off, we've got an episode on audiovisual translation. Since this is something I do myself, it only seemed right to start the series with it. And with two guests this time. Today, I'll be talking to audiovisual translators Lisa D'Alfonso and Chloe Stout. We'll be discussing what audiovisual translation is and what we do, what we love and don't love about it, the software we use, how we deal with challenges, the differences between working with agencies and direct clients, and of course, sharing plenty of tips for anyone thinking of branching into subtitling. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi Chloe and Lisa, thank you so much for joining my podcast today. It's really great to have you here. Hi Dot, thanks for having us, it's great to be here. Hi Dot, it's really nice to be here to talk about subtitling today. I thought we could start by each doing a bit of an introduction, saying sort of how we got into subtitling and what we do. So I'll start off by saying I started with subtitling by doing a module in it as part of my translation masters. And that's kind of where I learned about it. And then after I finished that, I did some like volunteer subtitling for a charity. And then after doing that and getting some experience, I then like got into doing it for clients and like paid work. And then since then, I've kind of worked on like a variety of stuff like movies game shows documentaries interviews advertising (laughs) a lot of different stuff and yeah I'm really enjoying it what so what about you Chloe how did you get into subtitling so I actually studied audiovisual translation as my whole master's degree so I did it from there I decided to go into it quite early so that's where I got my experience in different software and subtitling from French and Italian to English but also I did a lot of subtitling for deaf and hard of hearing as part of my master's so now I do um, subtitle translation a little bit like you dot for things like films tv shows uh, documentaries interviews basically the same things that you said so I do that mm-hmm. for translation and I also do um, template creation for English audiovisual material as well mm-hmm. so um, I do a bit of both yeah I do I do some template creation as well I feel like it's quite a thing for like going into English what about you Lisa how did you get into it well in my case my translation program was pretty general we saw a lot of things and during my first year of my master's degree we saw different kinds of specialization and as a movie nerd I wanted to have more knowledge about subtitling and translation for audiovisual content in general so I found an internship in a translation school in Spain which was specialized in audiovisual. And that's where I learned everything about subtitling and I fell in love with it. I really liked it. So I decided that I wanted to specialize in this as I knew during my studies that I wanted a field that would be more creative. I wasn't much of a technical or legal translator. And yeah, that's how it started. I learned everything in Spain and then I, I learned a bit more and I focused on this when I started my career. So what sort of like things do you mostly subtitle like movies and uh yeah I mostly have it's it's usually tv shows uh I have some (laughs) films as well and also some documentaries just like you quite a variety then so I thought maybe we could start off by kind of touching on what audiovisual translation is and what it sort of entails because I think it's a lot broader than just subtitling obviously in this episode we're kind of going to focus more on subtitling because I think that's basically what we all do (laughs) Audiovisual translation is essentially translating any kind of like video or recorded audio content is what I'd say essentially. But I think it includes kind of dubbing, voiceovers, 
as well as subtitling and I was reading about subtitles the other day as well mm. so I think there's quite <laughs> it kind of encompasses a lot have you done any of those other things or do we all just kind of focus on subtitling? During my master's I was quite lucky because we got to cover a few different things not we didn't do dubbing as much and the voiceover side of things but we did get to do um theatre captioning so I got to actually go wow. and um, spend some time in the theatre doing the subtitles well not the subtitles the theatre captions for some performances so that was quite exciting but it's mm-hmm. not something I do right now but it's something that I'd definitely be interested in doing again in the future so that's where my kind of other experiences and I have got a little bit of experience as well with kind of dubbing templates as well mm-hmm. so that's again a little bit different to subtitling but mainly I focus on subtitling in most of my work yeah it's the same for me I learned a lot during my internships I could see what translation for subtitling dubbing closed captioning also respeaking many mm-hmm. different things but in the end I essentially do subtitling I would like to do more things like Maybe translation for scripts that I really liked. But yeah, for now, I don't really find the opportunities. It's really essentially subtitling. I'd love to learn more about other areas of it as well. Like I find dubbing really interesting. But mm-hmm. at the minute, yeah, I just see subtitling as well. So that will be mostly kind of what we focus on today. Within subtitling, there's obviously different forms of subtitling. Like you mentioned, Chloe, about doing template creation. But then there's also subtitling for the deaf and hard of hearing and then closed captions, although they're kind of... Same thing, I think. I've tried to look into it and I think some people say there's differences and some people say that there's not. So I think it depends. A lot of my clients kind of use Mm, those terms interchangeably. Lisa, do you do subtitles for the deaf and hard appearing as well? I do it a little, but it's true that there are not many opportunities. And I think this kind of job is also pretty underestimated. So it's not easy to find missions that are really worth it. I mean, like on a human point of view it's it's Mm -hmm. worth doing it and I would really like to adapt everything so everyone can enjoy audiovisual content but I think that it's really Mm -hmm. underestimated and not very well paid at the moment yeah I would agree yeah what would you say is the difference between plain subtitles and subtitles for the deaf and hard yeah I mean what do you mean by plain subtitles do you just mean translation or (laughs) hearing people yeah essentially yeah so obviously like the plain ones you're you tend to be translating in my experience anyway I don't know if maybe your experience is different either from audio or from a script or from an existing template and then from the deaf and hard of hearing or closed captions tends to be from for me it would be from English into English so the audio material would be in English and I would obviously transcribe what's on the screen and time it in to the audio in accordance with like the guidelines that I've got but then I'd also need to include things like sound effects that are important and plot pertinent so that people who can't hear can understand what's happening as well and there's different rules surrounding that and that can be different for different clients that I've noticed some say it's only plot pertinent things and some I think a lot of people also say that if you can see that it's happening so if you can see that someone slams a door on screen you don't need to put a caption for it but if you if it's off screen then you would need to then obviously you can't see it it's not visual I think that's the main difference is the sound effects Sometimes you have to include speaker tags Uh, speaker tags yeah that's the main thing if they're like if you can't tell who's speaking because they're off screen or yeah. something, but that yeah. people who can hear can hear who it is, then you can tell whose voice it is. Yeah, so the yeah. speaker <laughs> tags as well. And then obviously for like plain subtitling, if there's on screen text in the language that you're translating from, you would need to include that in the subtitling file. Whereas for a SDH file, subtitling for deaf and hard of hearing, you wouldn't need to include any on screen text because it's not sound. So they can obviously read it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another difference. 
Yeah, I've done subtitles with deaf and hard of hearing as well, like with translation, like in the same way that I've done oh, really? translated okay. subtitles. I've kind of done both, like I've done plain and SDH for English and for German and Dutch okay. in English. But then what I've often had to do is because they want plain subtitles as well for the translation, I often do those. Right. And then create SDH subtitles from those and have to like yeah, go through and yeah. add in all the extra bits which makes yeah. it then really tough often with the character limits because you then have to add in yeah. like someone's name in front of it it can be frustrating when people have a really long name and you have to keep putting their name because they're always <laughs> off screen and it's like you're taking up so many characters <laughs> but obviously it has to has to be that <laughs> And also usually in um, subtitling for the hard of hearing, I find that the character limitation is shorter mm-hmm. than for normal subtitling because they say that someone that doesn't have like the, the information given by the sounds will require more time to, mm-hmm. to read and understand the situation. So yeah. it's usually shorter, mm-hmm. but you have more information to put in. So it's very complicated. It can be quite challenging, yeah. Especially when they speak really fast as well. Yeah. And there's a lot of dialogue and yeah. you've got a lower reading speed and a lower character limit. It can be tricky. <laughs> Other differences with plain subtitling is that, at least in French, I don't know how it works in other languages, but the subtitles are placed under the character. So it's easier to analyze who is speaking. And you also have a kind of code with colors to mm. identify what kind of sound it is. There will be a different color for the text, depending on if the character is on screen or if it's on, off screen, oh, yeah. if the sound is a music or if it's a noise or if it's in a foreign language. And you have this kind of code that help the viewer identify and analyze what's happening. That's really interesting. I've not, yeah. I don't, I've not so, seen that in English. I've not come across that. The only kind of similar thing is that in like subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing sometimes it's color-coded instead of having speaker tags to differentiate between Mm. different speakers on screen but that depends on um, what the client wants in the end and if that's possible with the software Mm. a lot of the things kind of do depend on client like there's so many different variables with subtitling because you obviously we have we have a lot of kind of rules to adhere to like depending on the different kind of subtitling like you're allowed like a set number of lines usually I find it's two lines but I have Mm. come across having three lines yeah and then like number of characters per line which is usually around 42 I find I guess it varies though and obviously then you've got the characters per second as well which varies again according to what the client wants and I've also found like some where the characters per second limit is shorter if the content is for children because Mm. they can't read as quickly but also I think there's different rules for the actual formatting I think there's different that obviously as Lisa said like there are different rules for different languages like with regards to like when you've got like two speakers in one subtitle like in English you normally do like a a dash and then the thing but like when I've translated from Dutch sometimes if the plain subtitles are already there they only include the dash on the second line I think and not on the first one so like things like that like do yeah. you <laughs> vary and like when you should use italics or like which parts you should subtitle and which you shouldn't and like it's a, <laughs> you really have to like with every client get a new list of guidelines and look at them and see, like make notes of the things that stand out to you that yeah. are different and change all the settings in the software so they've got the right cps and the right <laughs> line length and things before you start yeah, I had recently, I was I did a project for a client and I'd set my characters per second and my all my things, I'd set them. But I hadn't realised that it had set it 
not including mm. spaces and not including yeah. um, punctuation. Yeah. So then when I sent it over to her, she was like, so many of the subtitles are way over the thing. And I was like, oh no, what have yeah. I done wrong? And I checked my settings. So then I had to go back. I've done that before as well. I set the software and I've been like, that looks way more than 42 characters. And I've been like, what's <laughs> going on? And I've like sat and counted it and been like, that's like 50 characters. <laughs> and then I've realised like, <laughs> oh, I've got the settings wrong. There's always something that you have to think about. Yeah, and actually, the first time I taught audiovisual translation, because uh, I teach it in my former school, I wanted to teach my students how to use uh, AGISEB, which is a free software, <laughs> and it's pretty easy to use. So I showed them how to download it and how to write subtitles, and then everything looked so long, and I was like, it looks strange, but I don't know what happened. And you realize that when you download the software, you go into the settings and automatically it doesn't count the breaking spaces and mm. the punctuation. So you have to fix it at first when mm. you're just starting. Yeah. <laughs> I thought with this episode, we could incorporate the questions that people have sent in kind of throughout the episode, because a lot of them are relevant to different parts of things we were talking about. So I'm going to start with our first question, which is from Ava. And she asks, what do you do if the subtitle is too long? Can you just cut information out? And do you get to decide that or do you have to ask the client every single time? Well, most of the time, at least in my case, I would say that it's your job to be able to identify what is relevant and what is not, especially because videos are full of parasite words, you know, things that are meaningless. For example, I just said, you know, and you don't have to translate, you know, every time you hear it or like or sort of or... Mm -hmm. Even sometimes some, um, some adjectives, let's say that a sentence is very long and the adjective is making it too long and it's not that relevant to understand the situation, then maybe you can omit it. So you're allowed to do that. <laughs> if you feel that all information is important, maybe you can ask your client, but it happens way too many times to ask your client every single time it happens. You have to be able to identify what is important. <laughs> Yeah, so the reading speed that you usually have to adhere to is like a lot slower than what a usual speaking speed is. So it's quite, it's really common that you have to cut things down. And obviously speaking speed in different languages is different as well. And sometimes it's almost, I find it easier when I'm translating to make it shorter, partly because French, I think, uses kind of more words French and Italian both use more words than English tends to to convey the same meaning, although sometimes it can be the opposite as well. And also when you're doing from an English video to make an English temper or to do um, deaf and hard of hearing subtitles, it's more important that you say cl more close to what the speaker is saying. Because, for example, if people are, have got partial hearing, they might be able to, it might be confusing to see that it's completely different than what they've may have perceived as being said I think so usually for when it's English to English I some of my clients say you can't paraphrase but you can truncate so that you can just take words out but you mm -hmm. can't change like an adjective to make it shorter even if it's got the same meaning mm -hmm. whereas if I were translating there's a little bit more freedom to do that and so you can kind of change the sentence around mm -hmm. a bit because you're writing it so it is different and then another option um, that you might have if the if a, a line is too long if you've got the space with regard to the reading speed, you can also create a new subtitle or split. So you don't necessarily have to change the sentence around. You can always split it into two subtitles if the reading speed and the space allows you to do that. I find it as well. I find it easier when I'm translating it into English, because as you said, you don't have to worry about trying to make it as close to what the original is as possible. And I find the same as well with, with German and Dutch. It's often a lot longer 
in those languages so then when I translate it into English it's usually not too hard to make mm. it shorter because our words are just not as long. Sometimes people kind of start a train of thought and then don't finish it and you don't have to necessarily some clients have different preferences but usually you don't have to include that as well so that gives you a little bit more space to play with in time. Yeah oh something we haven't actually mentioned as well is shot changes mm. because shot changes affect what you can do as well because I mean so I have had clients that aren't bothered at all about shot changes and mm. they just say ignore them but most of the time obviously you, you want to try and keep the subtitle within a shot or not have it too close to a shot change because I think it gets confusing to read. I think it can look flickery if like the shot change comes and then a subtitle appears or disappears too soon to it. Yeah and also it is said that when you have a shot change well naturally you will think that there are new subtitles on screen and you will read it again which mm. is extra effort so the best yeah thing to do is to avoid keeping the same subtitle on two different shots Mm. yeah yeah or at least have it go long enough over one of my clients it's like if it's within 12 frames I think of the shot Mm. change it should start at the shot change and then it should always finish to if it's like within 12 frames of the end of a shot change it should finish two frames before it so then there's also because you also have the usually a two frame gap in between each subtitle as well (laughs) so like you really have to like fit that all around but I think especially with shot Mm. changes especially if it's a whole different scene then you should try and keep it within like if it's just a shot change like the same scene but just different angles then I think it's not as bad if it goes over as long as it's not too close to the Thing. but if it's like a whole different thing then it doesn't make sense that someone's still speaking from a <laughs> completely different scene so we've had another question from Iman who asks what are the best tips and tricks for optimal spotting when space and maximum reading constraints force us to overshoot the end position of a subtitle and or undershoot the start position now first off I'm just going to say I would usually have avoid undershooting the start position at all because I think usually the subtitle should never start before the person starts speaking. I think you can do one or two frames but more than that. Well yeah I I would say that if I need the subtitle to be longer I would avoid trying to make it start earlier but maybe make it a little longer of like like Chloe said maybe one or two frames but at the beginning it looks very strange. Mm. It's like you're anticipating the dialogue and it's just weird it also can be confusing because the viewer might think that they're missing something yeah but I think it's okay if it goes over a bit as long as it's not way overshooting or it's not interrupting someone else's like if someone else is starting Mm. speaking and that you're still reading the subtitle of somebody else I feel like it shouldn't do that too much I think again I work with 12 frames usually uh, after the audio is finished as like a general rule unless it's like specified otherwise because yeah if you leave it on like if it ends up being like double the length of the time they were actually speaking then (laughs) it's a bit strange the whole thing about subtitling is it is really challenging because we do have to adhere to like all of these different rules and get it within the time limits and make it so that it's actually comfortable for people to read it's a really technical task yeah like the tent you've got the technical side but the linguistic side will be good as well so it has to make sense it has to be understandable Mm -hmm. has to be a good translation and it's got to be like technically readable (laughs) the viewers <laughs> yeah and also it has to be flexible but not too flexible because well maybe it depends on the clients as well but I tend not to change for example the order of the sentence too much because mm. you do that for people who don't speak the language but if people do speak the language then it's very confusing and hard to understand a sentence 
if it's made like the other way around with the yeah. subject at the end and it's mm -hmm. way too confusing so, mm -hmm. so it's best to stay like faithful to the structure as much as mm -hmm. possible even if sometimes when mm -hmm. you change the order or the way your sentence is made then it's shorter so easier for the mm -hmm. reading speed so there's like a, a compromise to make and yeah. it's very complicated I find like with translating from German a lot of the time like they don't say the verb until right at the end of the sentence and sometimes they're saying like a really long sentence so I have to like add it in I often have to like change it around but then it it feels weird sometimes like when your first subtitle was like the second half of their sentence and then you're putting the other one after but I'm kind of like well if people don't understand <laughs> what is being said but then it depends on what you can see as well because we also have to take into account of what people can see on the on the video if it's a video because if they can see somebody I don't know pointing something or acting something out then you have to make sure yeah. that your translation kind of shows what they're doing. Hi I'm just jumping in from my editing station to add a bit of context here. When I say going like this I was flapping my arms like a bird. <laughs> so if they're talking about a bird and they're going like this You have to make sure you <laughs> translate it as a bird. You can't translate it into, I don't know, a caterpillar because then you'll be like, why are they doing mm. that? <laughs> it could be a challenge if it was like, imagine if it was like an idiom and they're doing that, but it's not an idiom in your language, then how how do you include the fact that it's a bird because they're mm. going like this, but not, <laughs> but have it make sense? Yeah, and with puns as well, because obviously what is a pun in English wouldn't be a pun in another language necessarily. So you have to either kind of find a way around it or like, but you can't ignore what's on screen because it's, it's there yeah. and you can't change it. So mm -hmm. you have to work with what, and that can be yeah a real challenge to make sure that I think like, it's a lot for like comedy and things like that. Um, that's why like translating humour is so difficult because you've, yeah. you've got also the on-screen humour that you've got to work with and the humour in general as well. Yeah, so if you have a discussion between two characters and someone is using an idiom or something, you can use the equivalent in your language and it's fine. But if the person is like adding some gesture on screen, it's basically transcreation. You just have to fit with the image and find something else that will be just as funny. Yeah. Mm. So it can be very tricky. Mm. Yeah, because especially if it needs to be funny, because if the characters on screen are then laughing, they're like, okay, this yeah. means like, I need to make this funny. But like, where, yeah. like, I think one of the hardest projects I had to work on was a stand-up, it was a Dutch stand-up comedy show. And also, uh, partly because obviously stand-up com comedy is like, basically continuous talking so it was a really like a lot of work because there was a lot of audio like, a lot of talking but also like mm. so many of it so many of the jokes were like specifically related to Dutch things and I was like this doesn't make like didn't make any sense he was doing like and he's mimicking like an accent of somewhere and I was like I can't mimic an accent like in like in subtitles <laughs> like I couldn't it was really hard because so many of his jokes like I was like do uh, I couldn't just completely make up brand new jokes for him like I'm not a comedian yeah. I don't I couldn't do it so a lot of the time I had to just like subtitle these things that people would probably only find funny if they understood the Dutch mm. culture and understood what he was talking about or understood yeah. the place that he was talking about but sometimes you just kind of have to do that and rely on people to look things up if they want to understand the joke because you can't mm. completely make up new things with different yeah Humor is so cultural as well, like especially like stand-up comedy. Like it's just so mm. related to like society and culture, and you can't change. Like you said, you can't just change 
what place he's staying yeah. <laughs> just for the fun of yeah. it because he might not he probably never been or knows that place so like it's a bit strange yeah but also like they know because these were like plain time titles they obviously know that he's Dutch like they could mm. hear that he was speaking Dutch so I'm kind of like well if somebody like Dutch stand-up comedy isn't something that is really commonly watched in the UK I don't think generally so I think like if somebody is making an effort to watch Dutch stand-up comedy you'd think that they probably might know something about the Netherlands to actually want to watch yeah. that because there's so many like obviously there's a lot of British and American stand-up comedians that p- would be, probably be easier for people to watch if they just wanted stand-up comedy yeah I think it's easier as well because like I watched American stand-up comedy and I don't find it that funny all the time but like British I love British stand-up mm-hmm. comedy so even like the nuances there with the same language like it's so cultural yeah I, I agree with you there I, do, yeah. I, just don't, <laughs> I don't find it as funny Renata wants to know how do you know when to translate song lyrics that are part of a movie or a tv show not not including musicals I'd ask the client what they want mm. and if they've not specified and it's their preference then yeah and usually the rule well the rule the um, clients prefer for example, if the song lyrics are relevant to the situation or the plot, they usually ask you to subtitle them. If it's just a random choice or, well, not for, not random, but a choice of a song that can be funny to, un- to hear at that moment just for the sound of it, then you don't have to translate the lyrics usually. Even more if it's a very famous song. Mm. There's also the option as well to, if it is a famous song, to put... Um, like the name of the song and the artist and then just put playing yeah as well okay I think I've you can do that in some situations and then so other situations as well I think because in some of the things I've subtitled in the past sometimes they're singing in English and Mm -hmm. so then it's like do I need to add subtitles to this or do Mm -hmm. I just leave it because the viewers we assume they understand English so again it's a client preference on whether you subtitle that as well I find that as well a lot of German things I've had to or Dutch things as well they use mm. English songs but then that also depends on whether you're creating if you're creating a subtitle template that's then going to be translated into other yeah. languages then you have to include all of the English as well that's in it because the other translators will need to mm. <laughs> translate yeah. that but I found as well sometimes it depends on whether the client has rights to the song as well like I think if they have rights to the song then you can or if not, I'm, I'm not really sure. But usually, yeah, the client will specify. Mm. Or if you're not sure, then you can ask the client. Should we talk about the tools that we work with? Because a few people were interested in that. Kelsey and Lucia both asked what subtitling tools we work with and which ones we recommend. What do you work with, Lisa? <laughs> well, most of my clients have their own tools. And I have to mm-hmm. admit that there are some pretty good ones. They're really convenient. And I really like working with them. But if it's not my client's tools, I mostly use a GitHub. Also because it allows you to have a format that includes the different colors we talked about for the subtitling for hard and hearing that are not included in all subtitle formats. So it's pretty convenient and quite easy to use at first. It's really easy to learn. So mm-hmm. I, for me, it would be this one. I don't know Una yet, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. <laughs> Yeah, for me, it's similar. A lot of my clients do have their own, either their own software, or I've got a couple of clients that do use Una as well through their own 
kind of login and I do like I, I do like Una but I've not got my own kind of subscription to it or anything and um, I do think it's very good and I do use if the client doesn't have their own software or access to a software I use EdgySub as well I find it really easy to use although I think I'm getting to a point where having used other software and starting to realize kind of what features it might be lacking that would be useful but the great thing about EdgySub is it's free so it's mm-hmm. a good way to get started out if you're wanting to you know try something out and another good one that I sometimes use is subtitle edit which is also free but I think I, I downloaded that because I needed a specific format that EdgySub couldn't do and um, subtitle edit could do it so I use EdgySub more and then when I was at uni mm-hmm. we used WinCaps which I liked using I thought was really good and I think I probably didn't get to use all the features that it had whilst I was doing my master's and um, but that's another software that I've used in the past. I've not tried wing caps but um I'm yeah pretty much the same as you both I use AG sub when it's like direct client work and they want me to use my own or some aid smaller agencies that want me to use my own software but I have also found the same thing I think what it was because occasionally I have clients that also want me to embed the subtitles instead of just sending them an SRT file which is what most clients want because it means they can add them in themselves and give people the option to turn them on and off but um I have had a few clients that they want the subtitles embedded and I found that AG sub because for example when you split it onto two lines in AG sub it does like the slash n I think it is um mm. so it has like different kind of I'm not sure what they're called like codes that it puts in it so that when you because when you save it as an SRT file it's, it kind of looks like a text file so it kind of has those little things in it to tell whatever you're doing that that's what it wants but it hadn't put anything in for the subtitles I wanted to be at the top because obviously sometimes when you're subtitling if there's some on-screen text or there's something there you need to move your subtitles to the top of the screen so that it doesn't cover over it and with AG sub it wasn't putting in anything to tell the software so when I embedded the subtitles into the video it hadn't moved some of them to the top so that's when I had to I think I I think I did it with subtitle edit it was either subtitle edit or subtitle workshop and I had to <laughs> put my subtitle file into that and then that had its own thing where it put a little symbol or something in there to tell it that it needed to go to the top and that worked for me <laughs> so I think yeah. like the softwares all have different things but most of the time you don't we don't have to embed subtitles into files ourselves but yeah I find I, I've used Una a lot with agencies and also other ones with agencies that have their own online platforms and I do find those really good and I'm, I'm starting to notice the same thing as you Chloe like I'm noticing more things that AG Sub doesn't offer and mm. I have been thinking about whether I want to actually purchase my own subtitling software but most of the like ones that I've found are <laughs> really really expensive so it's a big investment but I think as I'm starting to get more direct clients I think it might be worth doing it because it will make mm job easier but that's still yeah something that I'm looking into myself but yeah I'd yeah I'm just gonna say so for anyone who's like starting out new to it AG sub is a good one to start with and if you want to google it just it's spelled a-e-g-i-s-u-b another question which is from Kate who asks which file formats do you usually work in so I kind of already mentioned like most of my clients ask for it in SRT which is subrit text format um but like a lot of agencies when you're using their online software then you just kind of press submit and you don't have to think about what format it's in do you find the same yeah I found this it's mainly SRTs I have had a couple I did have one client who wanted STL I think it was so I did that but usually the softwares um are quite good and that you can just save as so you don't mm-hmm. need to kind of worry about it until you come to kind of finishing it you don't need to set it up you need to check your software 
can save it as that file and then you can send it to the client in that format. So I think STL I had, and I think there was another one that I've forgotten what it was, but SRT usually most of the time. Yeah, it's the same for me. It's mostly SRT except for subtitling for the hard of hearing because you need a format, as I said, that keeps the color and the position of the subtitles. So in this case, it's called ASS. So yeah, that's the only two formats I use in my everyday life. Yeah, I think I think also SRT is the one that you can upload onto YouTube. Chloe, what's your favorite thing about subtitling? Oh, there's a lot of things I love about subtitling. Um, I love like, I do really enjoy the extra challenges that we get with it. I think that makes it a really interesting job to do because you get the linguistic side and the technical side and you have to do both, which is hard, but I really enjoy playing around with words to make it fit the reading speed and things like that. I also really love getting to work on really cool files and things like that. I think I mentioned earlier I work on a variety of things, but um, there's a lot of really cool stuff that I get to work on, um, which I really love. And it's also really nice to be able to see kind of the final product at the end when you watch it all through to like do the final checks mm. and things it's kind of it's quite satisfying to be like oh I made these subtitles especially when you do it from scratch it's like oh I did this myself <laughs> like it's really <laughs> it's really cool and I really yeah I, yeah I really enjoy it what about you Lisa what's your favorite thing about subtitles <laughs> it's not going to be very original because it's basically what Chloe said I guess that it's the case in most French translation fields that it's true that you work with a lot of different content and it's really exciting because you really never get bored and it can be just as funny and challenging as it could be super technical <laughs> I really love the flexibility that it requires as well because you need to as Chloe said to play with words if you have a specific sentence that you hear uh, most of the time in your content after a few years or months of experience like oh yeah this I know I need to say it like this because it's shorter and you get like mm. the it's like becoming a sort of reflex and and it's funny but yeah it's all the challenges that it requires and the creativity as well when I come up with a joke or wordplay that adapts perfectly the situation I'm like yay (laughs) (laughs) and yeah it's true that it's also very rewarding to see your name at the end of the content once it's available you're like yeah I did that that's cool (laughs) I don't know about you guys as well but I really like the variety so I do mostly subtitling all the Um, but I also do kind of other translation as well so it's nice to have the variety of doing both and also within just like audiovisual there's a lot of variety of the kind of things that you might get to do like Lisa said you get some more technical things and you get more other more creative things that you can do so there is a lot of variety which I love yeah I'm the same I like having the variety and I as well do like I do some text translation as well so sometimes like I like to split up my day and spend like half the day subtitling half of it doing this and like that Mm. way I just never get bored of what what I'm doing but I have to say my absolute favorite thing about subtitling this is a really random specific thing but when I'm subtitling it's usually like rom-coms and stuff like that and then when there's like a music scene or a dance scene and like I just start like I do the text bit and then the music happens and you just get to play it through and sit there and like dance along <laughs> while you wait for that bit to finish and the new subtitles and I think those are my favorite moments which is maybe a bit weird because they're the moments when I'm not actually doing the subtitling but it's nice like the, those little breaks but it still counts as working you're still working <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because I notice it now on TV when I'm watching programs and stuff. And I'm like, oh, this would be a great bit of subtitle because they're not talking for three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another thing that I like with audiovisual translation is something that you 
don't necessarily have with text. You know, when you receive this email asking you to subtitle this program and you know it's going to be big, you know, it's for a streaming platform mm -hmm. or for TV and you're like, I'm seeing this before everybody else. And it can be super rewarding yeah. and it's a funny feeling. No, that's, a, that's another good thing. We get to watch things before <laughs> before everyone else. And I've had friends who have been like, oh, do you get to watch this first? And I'm like, no, like only the Dutch, like the Dutch <laughs> things and the German things that you probably won't even know what I've <laughs> been watching. So like they don't even know what it is anyway. <laughs> like not that I'm, obviously we sign NDAs, so I can't really talk about it, but they're like, oh, you get to watch, like one of my friends is like, oh, do you, did you get to watch Stranger Things before it came out? And I'm like, no, I don't, I didn't need to translate that into English. Like that's like in English. But I guess you probably get that more, like, you probably get that more Lisa with French because I guess, like, people probably watch a lot more shows that are in English in France than people watch foreign things in England, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mostly work from English for audiovisual translation. So it's true that sometimes I see some titles and like, oh, I know that. <laughs> and then you work on it. And after a couple of weeks or a couple of months, you hear people talking about it or you see it on a platform and you're like, oh, yeah, I remember I worked on that before everyone else could see it. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about our favorite things about subtitling what is our least favorite what do you hate the most about it I think it's like the, like the same things <laughs> like <laughs> how challenging it can be the fact that we can't tell people what we've been working on because it's really cool mm -hmm. it's basically the same things <laughs> well I would say the same uh, for the fact that you can't tell people about your project sometimes for some mm -hmm. clients including after it's released which is very strange mm. but yeah If we talk about the task itself, there aren't many things that I don't like. It's more of the system of, for example, the permanent rate for me, which is irrelevant compared to the work you have to do. For example, as you said, if you have like a one hour episode of a Korean drama, it won't take you that long because it's not really technical. You have some scenes with music. And for example, if you have a 25 minute uh, episode of a sitcom full of puns and song lyrics it'll take you forever and you're paid like almost nothing mm -hmm. it can be very frustrating and I tend to educate my clients about it uh, mostly direct clients because it's not very easy to do with agencies but most of the time when I have a uh, task with direct clients I tend to do it differently for example if they have a transcription I can try to do a per word uh, rate or per hour rate which is probably the most relevant thing to do because depending on the length of mm -hmm. the and the nature of the content well it won't take you the same time so yeah that's probably what annoys me the most about this industry I think all of my clients I've done it per audio minute but it really does like make a huge difference because like as you said I was paid the same rate per minute for the stand-up comedy <laughs> I did as I was for a rom-com that I subtitled and it they're like they take such different amounts of time just because of like the amount of content and what you have mm -hmm. to translate but I think my least favorite thing alongside like not being able to tell people what you're working on. Even like I have some clients and right at the end of the movie, I get subtitle credits and it has my name in it. But I'm still not allowed to tell anyone. <laughs> I just have to like yes. hope that people might watch it all the way through. But then it's at the end of, at the, end of all the, credit. the other credits and like no one watches it. And a lot of like platforms as well, they don't even show the end of it anyway. Like it'll just like automatically move on to something else. So it's like <laughs> my name is in it and I can't even tell anyone it's really frustrating because obviously like we want to be able to show 
off our work and like talk about what we do oh and also something else that I don't hate but it's definitely one of the most challenging things is when I get it's usually with direct clients when I have a project and they just send a video and there's no transcript or anything and if it's in Mm. German like usually I try and get a sample of it first I can check like whether they have an accent or like what the quality is like but sometimes there are bits where I literally can't understand what's being said and then how do you translate something if you're literally like what is that word like I don't know what they're saying and like I've had a lot of especially like when I was starting out and that happened I had like massive panics because I was like (laughs) how like I can't like what can I do this Mm -hmm. like but now what I've started doing is because usually that's with direct clients I find that most agencies have a transcript available just like so you can check it um even though it's not always 100% correct <laughs> but what I do now with direct clients is I actually use um Ava <laughs> our friend Ava who's a native German speaker and so like sometimes I'll say to the client like are you happy for me to check with a native German speaker in the case that there's any bits that I can't fully understand and then I like kind of explain to them that obviously I'm never going to understand it exactly as well as a native German speaker can understand it even though obviously I can Mm -hmm. understand German and I don't want to make it sound like I'm not capable of doing Mm -hmm. the job and usually there's only like two or three bits sometimes in it but just having that safety Mm -hmm. net it makes me a lot less stressed because I know that if I really can't understand it and like recently I did one and there are a few bits I can understand and it turns out (laughs) they were the bits when the guy was saying English words in his German but the English words were the ones I couldn't understand because of his German accent so I was trying to figure out what German word he was saying and it had to be like those are mm. English words yeah yeah it happened yeah. to me recently as well because I had to subtitle some documentaries that were filmed in Colombia and Dominican Republic so yeah same I didn't have a transcription or anything and the client asked if I could do it I asked if I could outsource it he said that it would be too expensive so he wanted me to do it so I explained that as a non-native speaker, I could not do it like a hundred percent. I would try my best, but they had no problem with it. It was like, yeah, do your best. Try to listen and to listen carefully. And if there's anything you don't really understand, like mark it in the document and send it back. And I would try to help you because they were the one who did the interview. So mm-hmm. they probably knew what they were talking about, including some technical words I couldn't understand. So there's always a way to like act around it and ask for help without looking unprofessional I mean it's Mm -hmm. normal if it's not your native language not to understand everything yeah Mm -hmm. it's so frustrating though when you're listening to me you're like I I speak this language I should be able to hear what they're saying but I do a similar thing to you Lisa what you were talking about I usually um would write if there's anything I don't understand I'll make a note of it using like an excel file with the um time code and then the query and then once I finish the first draft I'll usually just go check them all through again because sometimes when you hear it like the next day for example or a few days later you're like oh of course that's what you're saying like Mm -hmm. why did I not understand that before and then if there's any that I still don't understand I'll just send it off to a client and be like I'm really sorry there's a couple of bits where they're speaking really fast or with a thick accent can you just verify this either with like if it's like an agency with like because most of mine are with agencies I just get can you like check this with with the client to see if they've can tell you what they're saying and then I can make sure the translation's as accurate as possible I think it's definitely like something to be aware of for people that are starting out because it made me really like kind of unsure it made me like doubt my skills as a translator because I was like I should be able to understand like all of this and I was like I can't understand it like what (laughs) like it gave me a lot of kind of self-doubt and like now obviously I'm like well that's normal (laughs) like you never and sometimes like it's just if someone's talking really fast, if they're interrupted, if sometimes they 
trail off and don't even finish the sentence which is especially like frustrating in German when the verb is at the end and they don't say the verb and you're like how do I even like, like what do I put in here like but it's normal and like we're mm. never unless you're literally bilingual I think like that's the whole point why we don't translate into our second languages but there's also times when I work with English files to make templates or to create closed captions for example and I don't understand what they're saying and I'm like what is this and that that could be they're speaking really fast or they've got a thick accent or it's a really technical word that I've never come across before so I have to remind myself that it happens in my own language so of course it's going to happen in a language that's not my native language so it's I have to always like remind myself of that that even in English files I sometimes have to ask do you have clarification on what this person's saying so like it's normal yeah and it's kind of funny how we accept it you know for text you're like well, we're translators, but we're not walking dictionaries, so we don't know what everyone means. But when it comes to transcription, you're like, why can't I just understand what they're saying? Yeah. And then you're in the dictionary and you're typing in like what you think they might have said, and, like trying yeah. to figure out what exists and then what it means, and then does that fit with what they're saying? And like, it's, it's funny. Yeah, no, I'm doing that all the time. I'm like, ty- I like type out how it sounds, and then it's like that's not a word. Okay, like could they could right. be this letter? Like, oh, yeah. what? And some dictionaries give you like um, suggestions as to like, did you mean this word? And then you're like looking through them, like, you're like, yes, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it's that one, yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes you're still like, have no idea. There is also the option, like the very this would be like your absolute like last resort, but there is the option to write inaudible in square brackets but obviously like you'd first try and understand it check with Mm. the client but sometimes like that just happens because sometimes people just I I do it all the time it's just randomly mumble and nobody knows what I'm saying even myself and like you just can't like make something up that someone might have said I think that's why scripted things tend to be easier not just because you've might have a script but also because they tend to speak in coherent full sentences and it's much easier you don't have to be like because sometimes people just don't make sense and you like they start a sentence and then they'll change it into something else or they'll stop saying it and saying something else but they're speaking so fast that you're like hearing all these words and you're just like that's not coherent and actually it's not coherent in French for example but you're Mm -hmm. like oh my god it's not coherent so it's I can't like so I must be misunderstanding it but actually it's just not coherent (laughs) yeah this is actually something really interesting that came up when I did the episode about interpreting with Sabrina Mm. because like that happens when people just speak like obviously it happens all the time when people speak and the interpreters actually have to like listen to it and just say something on the spot and like it's hard enough with subtitling and I don't even know Mm. how how interpreters manage to do that when people don't finish their sentences or just like talk really quickly because they have to process it all really quickly I think yeah because we can listen through like as many times as we want or need we can just sometimes I like listening to listen to again and then like I said earlier you have to like sometimes just take a break and even go back to it a few days later to be able to understand what they're saying and interpreters just don't have that option Katerina asks, what kind of content do you usually translate and which is your favourite? So we've kind of all said like which kind of content we translate, but what what is your favourite subtitle? That's a difficult question. (laughs) I would say that the most creative ones, it's challenging, but I really like humour. So it's quite satisfying to find some puns and manage to adapt the cultural references into French. And actually, it's funny because when we talk about audiovisual translation in French, we use the word adaptation more than translation. So uh, yeah, I think that's what I like the most. Maybe 
humoristic content. I quite like having a variety, like I mentioned earlier. I think I think I wouldn't ever want to do the same kind of thing all the time. Although you know, um, you can like narrow it somewhat. I really enjoy doing documentaries. I just feel like I learn so much. I think it's really cool to be able to like learn about something completely new while you're working. And mm-hmm. obviously, a lot of the things that we might do, people watch for entertainment. They watch like after work and we're doing that before work. But no, I really like documentaries because, mm-hmm. yeah, you just learn about things that you just didn't even realise existed and you get to research it. And it's always something like really interesting. I agree. I like doing, but I like having mixture. I do enjoy doing documentaries when it's something that I am interested in. I have done a few where it was something mm. I wasn't very interested in. I didn't really enjoy it because I was like, and it was things that I really didn't want to be mm. researching yeah. with like doing German and English. I've done quite a bit of like World War II content, which is not like I, I know about it and I did like study it at university, but it's not something I particularly enjoy researching. But it's fun to like be learning new things. But I also really enjoy doing wrong comms I can't lie I love watching them in my free time like when I just want to watch something that's like doesn't require any mental energy so I also really love subtitling them just because it's like it's fun and it's like usually quite easy to do because they're often just using kind of everyday language and it doesn't usually get too technical and then as I said before you get the little like dancey bits in between sometimes or like they're like slow romantic scenes but like nobody's really talking much so it's really nice to have the balance of both of those I'd say and the comedy I do like the comedy but it's not my favorite just because it is so challenging and you have to kind of find it funny yourself I one thing I find actually I was doing this tv show like subtitling a tv show and it was like comedy but I just didn't I couldn't find it funny because I was going through it so slowly and like obviously because we don't watch it at the normal speed as we're subtitling it and I was going through it so slowly that the jokes just weren't funny anymore because they weren't happening like quickly enough so like I just that wasn't as enjoyable I really love um going back to kind of like what we like about subtitling you kind of reminded me I really like doing like rom-coms and stuff like that and tv series because I really like thinking like what would this character say if they were speaking English in this situation rather than like translating like word for word it's like being able to use that creativity of like how would this person react in English Mm -hmm. rather than right what they're saying in French how do I translate that it's like right what would they say they'd say this like colloquially so being able to use like the colloquial language like it can be more difficult to understand if you don't have a script for example but being Mm -hmm. able to translate it and think what would you try to like, have a character in your head of like if this character were speaking English or if they were British or whatever and then like what would they say so it's like I really like being able to do that and using that creativity and that mm-hmm. side of things and then you get to and then you get to watch rom-coms in English as your CPD <laughs> because you're like yeah. well I just I just need to <laughs> get familiar with how how the characters speak in English so I better watch loads of <laughs> British rom-coms yeah exactly <laughs> So let's talk about any memorable projects that we've worked on. Like, I know that we can't talk specifically about things mostly because we sign NDAs. Actually, Lucy wrote a comment saying, let's join forces with subtitlism and find a way to be able to say all the cool stuff we work on without infringing NDAs. And I think we can sort of, I mean, as we have, we can sort of like talk around what we've done without mentioning specific clients and like specific details. Do you have any like really memorable projects that you've, worked on there was one that I did that was an interview I did it quite early on and it was with an old lady and she basically had uh, she was Jewish and she'd kind of it was about her experience during World War II basically and like kind of how she kind of escaped 
the Nazis and stuff and that was quite heavy but also really interesting to kind of hear from her story and translate what she was saying so I thought that was kind of because that was one that I got really early on as well it's quite um, memorable in that sense as well and um, not just like the content that was really cool because she was kind of she's quite an old lady and she has I don't think French was her first language but she did um, live in France like basically all her life so it was there were parts that were quite tricky to understand what she was saying so it was a, a little bit challenging as well but yeah I'd say that one was quite memorable for that for that for those reasons I guess yeah, it's the same for me. I think the most memorable subtitling jobs were probably the most challenging ones. I've got a couple. I worked on a sitcom about like an African-American family and their kind of specialty was to add like rap sessions, like a lot of them. So I basically tried like to preserve the rhymes and the rhythm of the sentences in order to be able to read at the same pace as you can hear it. And yeah, that was that was tricky, but it was very interesting. And that's typically the kind of example I was talking about earlier. The episode was like 20 minutes long and it's so long to do, like much longer than a one hour Korean drama. Another one would be like a very long movie, like two hours and a half, I think. And it was highly technical because I had to look up some medical terminology and there were lots of scenes with demonstrations in the street and like chanting slogans which is also highly cultural I mean not every country has the same kind of slogans so it was also very challenging and very nice to do and yeah I guess the project that I would remember the most is a short movie that I translated for uh, well I didn't translate but I subtitled for the deaf and hard of hearing and this short movie was in a French movie festival so it was quite a rewarding experience. Another question from Iman, who asked, what's the best way to address difficulties arising from cultural differences when translating puns, jokes, and any other culturally sensitive concerns found in the material that we're subtitling? Well, I would answer translator's favourite sentence and say it depends. <laughs> like, for example, if you're subtitling, I don't know, an episode of The Simpsons, that's like highly, well, it's culturally anchored and it's very American, so there's no way you can adapt American references and make them like French or Italian because it would make no sense. You need to analyze the kind of content that you have. And if the cultural references are anchored into the topic of your content or if it's just like a random reference and you would need to adapt it in order for your audience to understand it. then if you have I don't know if I really have some tricks. Yeah, it's more about analyzing the situation, I would say. It's also um, kind of related to what we were talking about earlier about what's on screen as well. So I had a film that I was doing and they referred to some famous French guy. And I thought about kind of should I, can I find like an equivalent? But then they had like a picture of him on the wall. And I was like, oh, well, I can't change it then. It has to be him because his picture's on the wall. <laughs> to be honest, I find a lot of the time there's things like that where you there's a picture of the person on the wall or they come in it later yeah so you do have to like be really pay a lot of attention to what's going on on screen not just the audio and like also watch it ahead because sometimes you might like spend ages coming up with a really good equivalent and then later on you're like oh I can't I can't use that now because they've, they've mentioned it again and his picture's there I find it's worth sometimes going back uh, after you've gone through the first draft to some of these or like making a few notes on like the kind of thing you want because sometimes something will just come to your to mind as well you're like, oh that would be a really good equivalent for this guy and I always I usually like ask other people as well I think and like so if I said these few like keywords like what kind of famous person 
could I use here? And they they could give me some ideas and I can research and see if it's got the same kind of connotations. But it's not always possible. Sometimes you have to just use what you've got. Sometimes when, oh, what was the word? It was, oh, schadenfreude. I had the word schadenfreude, but it was, obviously that's a German word and it was in a Dutch movie that was subtitling. And so I was kind of like, okay, well, do you, like, obviously I know the word, but do I only know the word because I've been learning German? And like, I looked it up and it is in like the English dictionary, but I was like, but do people actually understand that in English? So I was like messaging my friends. I was messaging my mom, like, do you know this word? And they all basically said no. So I was like, okay. So I like translated that German word into English, even though it was in a Dutch movie. But like things like that, you just, I don't know, you have to, you have to know your target culture well enough to know what people understand. And I think it can be hard, even though obviously our target culture is like our own usually because we translate into, like my target culture will be like usually at England, sometimes ending it into American, like US English, but like usually it's like British English. So I kind of know it, but then obviously because I've been like learning German and Dutch and studying those cultures, sometimes you like... I will know more about those cultures than like most people in the UK so I think that they might understand it <laughs> and then like mm. so it's hard to kind of know what somebody who doesn't know what you know about the about your source cultures mm. what they would actually know about it if that yeah. makes any sense. That's why I try and like ask other people if I'm not sure because I'm like so A have you heard of this person or this reference do you know what it is and it's like if not okay like what kind of for you would come to mind if I described this person if mm. it were a British person or an American person or something like that so because I, I think sometimes you can be too like in also in the material to really think about like because mm-hmm. you have to think about how that person's been like that reference has been used rather than what the reference is if you know what I mean so it's kind of mm-hmm. it's kind of useful to kind of make some points about like right this person has raised a reference because they've got this personality they've got this job mm-hmm. or they've done this in the past and then you've got to kind of try and then like reformulate that into a more local yeah reference. and I guess like figure out whether the actual specific person or references what's important in it or whether the like general meaning I mean like with any translation like do you yeah do you convey the specific points or do you just convey the whole meaning like which bit is the most important Important. but it can be hard when you're doing like a series because what if they bring it up in another episode (laughs) like Mm. with a movie usually it's like the movie and you can watch through but like if it's another series usually what I found usually with agencies with series they'll give different episodes out to different translators you're not always working on the whole series yourself because usually they need it within a shorter period of time that they need more people working on it I've had some experience where I've been able to collaborate with the other translators and we can kind of make sure that we're keeping the same kind of stuff like making it all kind of consistent um Mm. but sometimes you don't get to do that I've had it before as well where I've tried to change like a cultural reference and then they said oh no we'd rather it just keep with the French reference so you might come up with something and Mm. then they're like actually no like why have you changed this it's like oh cultural oh we don't want you to change it so sometimes it is worth kind of just clarifying as well if you need to because also my preference would always be to Mm -hmm. make it locally relevant but if the client doesn't want you to then you can't really you can try and educate but you can't dictate one of the pitfalls of the job are probably is probably over adapting for like some details and Mm. um I usually see in some programs, for example, I don't know, an American show that will refer to Taco Bell or Wendy's and they will change it to a French or Belgian brand. Mm. And it's just really strange because, I mean, the situation takes place in the US. Mm. It's just really strange to talk about something else. And I think that one of the Mm -hmm. 
tips I would give in this case, if you cannot change the term, you can at least like describe it. Just give like a generic name to describe the kind of place it is. Yeah. So you don't over adapt it, but mm-hmm. your audience understand what you're talking about. Yeah, like saying like fast food restaurant mm-hmm. instead yeah. of giving that the brand name. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that is one of one of the main differences between subtitling and text translation is that it obviously takes place where it takes place. Like it's a video, you can't change where it takes place or like exactly like what they can see on screen. Like you can see that they're in the US and like what they're doing is like things in the US so like you can't I feel like you can't change as many things as you can with text translation like with text Mm. translation you can maybe be more flexible and like I know a lot of the time like it depends on how kind of important the location is or the scene or whatever but some with sometimes with text translation they want you to like fully localize it into a different place like pretend that it's set in the UK for example or something like that and like you can kind of do that with text translation but with like (laughs) with Mm. with with a video you can't Mm. you can't change what is already on screen and like the whole setting and like if they're playing subtitles as well they can hear that they are speaking (laughs) in English or with an American accent or like (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes it's also very tricky it reminds me of an example an example that I had with an episode of a TV show and it was kind of a funny character uh, who was making a joke and actually the joke consisted in um, so this character seemed like a religious guide to another person and so he wanted to make fun of them by quoting a famous American song Mm. uh, Waterfalls by TLC Mm. so it's it's kind of funny when you look at, when you watch it in English and you understand why that he's making fun of of the person because they're using the lyrics to guide them and you're like how do I do that in French because he's not singing he's just quoting and French people don't know the lyrics to that song because it's not culturally anchored in the French culture so in this case you have to over adapt like the character is American it takes place in the US but you have to make them quote a French song so you have the humoristic effect that the scene requires and it's yeah it's all about identifying the process that you can use in this situation without hurting the culture of the original content mm. but at the mm-hmm. same time having the same effect in the target language it's all it's like, like a big compromise balancing yeah a compromise. <laughs> you end up with a American character singing it or actually quoting in French like a famous <laughs> French or French Canadian song <laughs> so. I think we've we've all worked with agencies and worked with direct clients how, how do you find the differences I actually mainly work with agencies I have worked with a couple of direct clients but I don't have any kind of long-term direct client relationships for audiovisual so I guess most of my experience will be about agencies and the thing I do like about agencies is I think there's a good level of communication with the PMs and the client and like we mentioned earlier often you get to work on their software which tends to be tailored towards the kind of thing that they want you to do and mm-hmm. it's usually very like very good it's just sometimes it's a little bit tricky to have to learn lots of different ones but I think that's one of the, the main benefits of working with agencies is being able to use their software and having the contact with the PM. I would say that the perks of direct clients is that it's easier to educate them about the working conditions like the time required the different steps that it requires and so it's easier for them to understand what subtitling involves and I think the problem 
is that with agencies, they tend to impose a little bit their rates and the permanent mm -hmm. rate can be really unsatisfying. <laughs> also, it's harder to educate agencies because subtitling has the particularity to be also accessible for people who don't do it as a job, like, you know, fan subs and everything. So it's hard to maintain mm -hmm. good rates when you have such a competition. But yeah, I think I prefer direct clients. The only issue is that you don't get to have projects like, well, big movies and TV stuff. Obviously, it goes mainly through agencies because they treat several languages at the same time. So yeah, I would say I prefer working with direct clients rate-wise, but I probably prefer the content that I have with agencies. I wouldn't say I prefer one over the other because I think they both have pros and cons. I mean, mm -hmm. I think like working with direct clients, I do like it because you can, A, you can kind of tell them a bit more about every step you have to take as you said and with like rates they don't impose their rates on you because they usually like they ask you how like how much do you charge whereas agencies often turn up and they're like oh like we pay this much but I do like I like with agencies that you usually have a transcript like a lot of time I get given like the Dutch template already there and all I have to do is the translation and I don't have to like sometimes you have to move around the time codes a little bit but you don't have to do as much of the time coding and the text is like already there so it's obviously a lot of an easier job whereas like a lot of time with direct clients I find that they don't have a transcript at all so like I said before the challenge is a lot of like actually understanding <laughs> it but on the other hand with direct clients you can often talk to the people that are actually in the content and like actually find out what they're saying or you have the direct contact with them to ask the questions that you need to ask whereas with agencies you might ask them the question and then they have to go back to the client and then come back to you and it's like it takes a bit longer because I have got direct clients where I have access to talk to basically anyone like I'm on their slack so I can talk to it like any of the people so I can ask the relevant person the relevant question and not have to just go back to one person so that's an advantage and also that I find that direct clients obviously it depends what the like subtitles are being used for but I find that they're usually happier for me to share that I've been working on it like if they're sharing it publicly then they're usually happy for me to say that I did the subtitles whereas agencies that like they want their name to be on it yeah another thing I found as well is because direct clients tend to kind of they kind of I would ask what are your like restrictions for like, like characters per line characters per second etc and they'd say oh whatever you think is best so it's kind of you're mm. not as restricted in that side of things as you might be where an agencies tend to have very strict guidelines and they can be quite tight sometimes so it's quite nice so obviously you don't make it ridiculous like 50 characters per line or whatever but it's nice to be able to kind of go to the upper limit of what you're used to oh and talking about that there's another uh, restriction that I don't think we talked about I don't know if you have it with your agency clients but when you work with their tools while you have the characters per line uh, you have the reading speed and also sometimes at the end when you're done subtitling and you check that everything is in order You have some tools in which you have, like, for example, 30% of the subtitles exceed their reading speed. Mm. And, for example, my client doesn't want uh, more than 30% of the subtitles exceeding. So you will have some, but you need to change them in order to make them shorter. So it's another, mm -hmm. another challenge that you have. You think you're done and everything is correct and you still have to correct some more. <laughs> mm. Yeah. For anyone that's listening who might be thinking that they want to get into subtitling or become an audiovisual translator, how should they go about doing it? And do you have any advice for those people? 
there's obviously the option, the kind of route that I did, if you don't already have a master's in translation and you're thinking about starting a career in translation and you're interested in audiovisual, then there are audiovisual master's programmes out there. And as part of mine, I did also study text translation, so it wasn't solely audiovisual. So I think that's something you could look out for. If you're already a translator and you're wanting to branch out into subtitling, there are courses available as well if, you're, if you want to do that. And I think Dot, you touched, touched on at the beginning, I think volunteering is a really mm-hmm. good um, way for any kind of translation as well. And I know that um, I worked on with TED Talks for um, translation and I've heard that being, uh, for subtitling, sorry, I've heard that recommended quite often because you get, a, I think you can do a bit of a training course with them free mm-hmm. and then you get to do volunteer work on their platform that they use subtitling TED Talks. So that's another good way to kind of get some experience and get used to using different types of software. And then I think, again, we touched on it earlier, but download some of the free software that we mentioned. And if you've got videos that you've got access to, just try and add some subtitles. It might even be in the same language that the video is in, just to get used to using the software mm-hmm. rather than trying to get the translation in straight away. Just to practice, get used to using the tools because before you get your first job, because when you get your first job and you're on a deadline and you're you've got to do the job and you've got to learn how to use the software it can be quite daunting mm-hmm. so if you learn how to do it first of all and then when you get your first job it'll be it won't be as daunting actually I wouldn't have much advice to add because since I learned everything during my internships I didn't have any other tools really there are some books that are written by uh, subtitling experts or audiovisual translation experts that you can find uh, that can help you understand subtitling as a task but also the working conditions how to rate your services how to find clients which can be very useful oh one thing actually that you can look at if you want to just like try it for yourself download the free software i believe that the netflix subtitling guidelines are all available online that you can just search for them and have a look at those and try subtitling your own videos or i don't know just get some sample videos from somewhere and try subtitling for following the Netflix guidelines because that's a good sort of basis. Obviously, every client usually has their own guidelines that they want you to follow, but that's a good kind of basis to start with and you can find the, their guidelines for the different kinds of subtitling as well, SDH. And I think for like a lot of different languages as well, because as I mentioned before, each language has their own <laughs> rules for how you create the subtitles. So that's a good, that's a good way to start out with doing that. Volunteering for TED Talk is a pretty good idea because, as Chloe said, that teaches you how to use a subtitling tool, which is pretty intuitive. And it gives mm-hmm. you really the basics then to be able, for example, to download AG Sub and just take a look around, get a YouTube video and load it in the in the software and train yourself and look around, see what all the features are. So, yeah, that's a that's a good idea. I think with the TED Talks as well, mm-hmm. usually there's a transcription. If you are going to translate, there is a transcription usually, so you don't need to rely on the audio. So that's a little bit, just makes it a little bit easier as a first buy. Mm-hmm. I guess another thing is just watch more TV with subtitles on and see what, um, I mean, careful like which ones you, you don't want to watch things that are automatically subtitled by accident. Yeah. But like things like if you watch Netflix shows, for example, you can kind of look at the subtitles and see how they've done it and what kind of decisions they've made with certain things. And I guess that's a good way to kind of learn how it's done. Kate asked, how do we price our services? I think normal, like what the norm is for subtitling, I found is that we charge a rate per audio minute. Yeah, I had one job where I was charged per subtitle. 
mm-hmm. rather than because it was from a template that already existed. So I was charged for that job per subtitle. And I knew in advance how many subtitles there were. So it wasn't like waiting mm-hmm. to see. So that was quite, it was crazy. Because obviously if you're charging by subtitle and you don't know how many there's going to be in the end, it can be uncertain. But I think for that one, it was okay. But it was just that one job. Most of the others, well, all the others I've done have been per minute. In my case, yeah, it's the same. It's just mostly per minute. As I, as I said earlier, sometimes depending on the task, I try to educate the client on the time required. And if I have, for example, a transcription, I can try to see if they would agree to a per word rate. And you have to take into account that you can't like just put a standard translation rate because you have to consider the restrictions for subtitling, which take longer. But yeah, I think that with experience, if you don't manage to set like a per word rate or if your client doesn't like the per hour rate because they don't know how long you're going to take, I think that with experience, you know what kind of per minute rate would be relevant to the time that you need to complete the task. It it takes (laughs) a little while, but then you figure it out. I mean, as we kind of mentioned before, the amount of time it takes you really varies depending on the type of translation you're doing. And I do have clients where we have a rate per minute agreed, but I do such a variety of content for them that sometimes if you work out by hour, I'm paying being paid a lot less per hour for some projects and more for other things so like it is difficult and there's a lot of debate on like the best way to price Mm. yourself or like how to how to charge it and I do I do actually have a client where I do text translation and some subtitling for them and they just pay me per hour as like standard for everything so like that is kind of a safe way to do it I guess because you know you're going to get paid what you want to get paid for the amount of time you spend on it but then at the same time you don't know in advance how much it's going to be and I know like it is a big obviously I think with translation as well in general like there's a big debate around it and one of the questions Anastasia has asked how can we fight against the falling rates for subtitling and translation work I know Lisa you've said about educating your clients especially direct clients I think that's a good thing to do because what I've had recently I had a client who was asked me for right for my rates and then I gave my rates and they were like oh this seems to be higher than the industry standards whatever that is so I explained to them like well that's because the industry standards are probably I mean whatever that even means probably based off the like having you might already have a template there you might already have a transcript you might not have to do the time coding all of those things like and also just you having and using your own software whether you have to embed the subtitles yourself so I explained to them like well this rate would include me having to listen to the audio understand it translate it time code it do all these things using my own software (laughs) and like we also have to remember that we we have to get paid not just for the amount of time that we spent doing it but the amount of time we spent learning how to do this like it's a really technical job and like (laughs) we haven't just studied like gone to university and spent had all this experience for nothing like it's cost us a lot of time so I think yeah we we just need to sometimes break it down and say I'm actually doing this 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 and this and this is all included in Mm -hmm. my rate yeah yeah that's why it's easier with direct clients because when you do like when you create a quote you put the transcription you put the time coding you put the translation you put the reviewing of the translation and making sure everything is correct Mm -hmm. and in the end once you you break everything down and you put the detail and the price of each service they're more likely and more inclined to pay you for your job than just a random price with like, this is this much per minute. And you're like, yeah, but what's behind it? Or it makes the job looks easy and fast, which it's not. 
I think I obviously agree with what you guys said, especially with direct clients being able to educate and stuff. And also I think it's really important to kind of like stand your ground with your rates. Don't kind of just lower your rates because someone asked you to. And also understand why you're charging the rates you're charging. So working out how long a certain task might take you and therefore like that's why you've got to charge that rate because you need to make X amount per hour. So I think having a real understanding of why your rates are what they are helps you really like stick by what you're charging. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we like we need to make a living out of what we do. Yeah. <laughs> try and negotiate, like try and get the rate that you want or have maybe like a minimum rate in your head and like offer higher than that so that there's room mm-hmm. to negotiate. And if they won't go even to your minimum then just say no like sometimes you just have to turn stuff down because it's just not worth your time I've had it before where I've tried to negotiate on rate and um, I've said I can do it for the rate you want but you have to provide me with the transcript or you have to provide me the template so rather than negotiating in terms of just money trying and saying Mm -hmm. okay I can do it for that price but you need to give me this and that's worked for me before in the past in getting kind of more materials as well and then paying the same amount Mm -hmm. that they they have to pay also another tip that i would add is usually i think when people think of subtitling they think a lot about tv shows and movies and it's true that when you turn to agencies for a big project it's really hard to compete and ask for your minimum rate at least but Mm -hmm. i think i would also say that if someone wants to consider subtitling there's way more than tv shows and, and movies you have documentaries you have also corporate videos that I mean Mm -hmm. it's 2021 so now people are using videos more and more to advertise their services or their products so you can Mm -hmm. uh, take advantage of this and educate people on how interesting it is and useful it is to have subtitles including for the hard of hearing Mm -hmm. as well so there are many ways to work on different content and educate people on the work it requires and the benefits you get from it I agree with you that's a good point we've covered quite a broad <laughs> range of things with regards to subtitling and I really really appreciate you both coming on here and having this discussion with me I've really enjoyed it if people do have any more questions for either of you or they are actually looking for a subtitler how can people get in touch with you if they have a question so you can contact me on LinkedIn which is closed out or you can contact me on Instagram and my handle is closed out translations and I have a website which is closed out translations.com so feel free to contact me through there as well. What about you, Lisa? You can essentially contact me on LinkedIn. So I'm Lisa Delfonso on there. And uh, I think there is my email address on it, which would be uh, Lisa Delfonso Trad, T-R-A-D, at gmail.com. And if you need any subtitling services, I translate from Spanish and English into French. Chloe, can you just remind us what languages yeah. you translate? I translate from French and Italian into English. And I do German and Dutch into English. (laughs) Thank you both so much again and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having us. Thank you for inviting us. I really enjoyed this chat. (laughs) Yeah, me too. It's great. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Meet the Translator podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Thanks again to Lisa and Chloe for joining me today and to everyone who sent in questions for us. Links to get in touch with us are in the show notes. If you have any questions or feedback about the podcast, send an email to meetthetranslator at gmail.com.